Welcome to Raising the Conversation. I'm Anna Robbins, and with me today is Dr. Nancy Nason-Clark. Nancy, I am so delighted you could talk with us on the podcast today. Well, thank you, Anna, for the invitation. Well, you've been uh, here on the Acadia campus for a couple of reasons lately. One, I know, was to be honored with the Honorary Doctor of Divinity degree awarded by the university. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Uh, we're very excited to be part of that day um, and, uh, and to hear more about the work that you've done and your passion for it um, after having done it for a number of years was inspiring. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, how you came into the work that you've done. Was it a sense of call or did you kind of fall into it? Well, I guess I grew up, Anna, being told that you needed to be ready to preach, pray, sing, or testify at a moment's notice. Mm. That was my heritage. That was my upbringing. And so I went away to a uh, Christian college uh, for my undergraduate in New York and then on to graduate school and then on to England later on. And I always had a sense that whatever work I would be doing would be what I was supposed to do if I was following um, through on the decision I'd made when I was three years old. Hmm. So I decided to follow Jesus when I was three, and I'm trying to keep on doing that. That's amazing. Do you remember that? I do Think, remember that. Really? I yeah. do remember it. I might have even been almost four, but I do remember. Um, and I think that the point I'd like to make is that, you know, there was, there was no loud bang, and there was no dramatic moment. But I think as doors opened, and I would, you know, very cautiously go through those, the Holy Spirit would empower and you know it was a mix of the training I had received the people who believed in me my own fear and trepidation but I'm a pretty hard worker and so it was a, like a creative mix of all of that and so my message to young people in particular who are looking or asking the question what does God have in store for me is you know you just do your very best and you go through the doors that are open and before long, you'll be convinced because others will say to you, I believe God is calling you in this way. Mm -hmm. And on that point, I would say often women don't receive this the same way men do. It's not been my personal story, but I'm very aware that when the church looks, uh, the congregational church looks over the young people who are assembled often they do not think in terms of equality and equity for both young women and men and so I would just encourage maybe those who are listening um, to remember that girls as well as boys are called of God and girls as well as boys can offer a whole variety of forms of service in that ministry. Well it's really interesting you say that because we had discovered that we share some formative years in the same congregation. Indeed. And that was not a congregation where women were ever seen in the pulpit, unless they were visiting missionaries, as mm -hmm. I recall. And yet, um, how how do you think it happened that that we ended up coming from that place? I mean, did you did you ever receive encouragement for for leadership in that context? No, but I think my parents always believed that you were supposed to do your best, and I never kind of questioned that. I remember when I first went off to university, there were some elderly women, probably the age I am now, but <laughs> elderly women who would say to me, well, dear, you play the piano and you cook quite well, and I think you'll be a pastor's wife someday. And hey, that's a wonderful calling, but it wasn't my calling. 
And so I think what happened when I got to university is I just, my mind came alive and, and I was challenged by many university professors to think outside the box and be creative and work harder and take more opportunities. And well, I just put my head down and did it. Mm-hmm. Here we are. But, but did you have opportunities for, for leading, even if it wasn't called that, perhaps? Well, I, I did, but I, I never thought of it as leading. I mean, no one else could play the piano for children's church, so I did it. And we didn't have enough Sunday school teachers, so I did it. And, and I'm not pointing to I necessarily. It was just if there was a willing body who was absolutely available, then you, you know, did the task. And and in fact, my own mother would sometimes get out her little notebook after prayer and write down her to-do list for the week because it was based on the prayer list mm-hmm. that had just been spoken in church. You know, Mrs. Jones was sick, we needed to take food and so on and so forth. So I think the point about hearing of the need and then getting yourself in gear was very much something that was always a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful for that. I've heard you say that you were um, a shy um, Very teenager. shy. And I think that surprises many of us who have encountered you in public settings and so on. And how then did you have the courage to walk through the doors of opportunity that were open for you? Because it, it would take a degree of courage, I imagine. Well, I'm very grateful that you don't you don't start by you know uh, uh, doing a marathon. You start by walking from one building to another. And so I think what happened is because I had a lot of opportunities, and I just would be doing things and often those were public things and and I think that's one of the things I recognize about congregational life is that there were a lot of opportunities for being engaged in service and because I was a shy adolescent I was often chosen because I would go if they asked for the Sunday school teachers all to meet and so people would think isn't that interesting a young girl of 14 who's here at the meeting well we need to get her to do something else and so it was little by little and then by the time I got to university um, you know I was being given more and more responsibility and I was trying to do my best Mm. and so your first uh, university experience was where? At Houghton College, which is in Houghton, New York. That's sort of almost uh, near Buffalo, New York. It was a school associated with the Christian College Consortium, but linked with the Wesleyan Church. And were you, I mean, you grew up in the Maritimes. So was this a fearsome thing to do? Well, I think it was very fearsome for my parents because my, my, my parents dropped me off. I had to come a couple of days early with the foreign students. And I, they left me sitting on my trunk outside a locked residence, and they had to leave because they had responsibilities to be back home. But, you know, when I look back on that, I, I do it from a point of view that I just felt really privileged that I was going to be able to do this. And I, I mentioned uh, in a, an address I gave recently that my father, I realized and, and heard the story at, at uh when the visitation was happening at, at the time of his funeral, that he took a lot of criticism for sending me away to university. And, and, you know, it was expensive. My family was not wealthy. And so it was a big stretch for them to send me away to a private school. And they did that because they wanted me to be self-sufficient as an adult woman. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very grateful for that. Mm. So you are internationally known as a leading voice in intimate partner violence in terms of the research that you have uh, done and the projects that you've had opportunity to lead and stepped into. Um, 
Is that a sense of call that you have to do that work? Did you stumble into it? How did that come about? Well, of course, it would be disrespectful and untrue for me to say that I don't have a sense of call, because of course I do, in a way. But how it really began is I finished my PhD, and of course, like other Christians, I was praying what my next step would be. And I received a one-year position back at the University of New Brunswick. I'd been in, in London, in England, for four years, and I'd worked in a variety of contexts, including the British and Foreign Bible Society. And so I began to be get, to get invitations to speak at women's conventions. Those were the days when there were large women's conventions and they needed speakers, and I guess I was cheap and young, and so there we were. And I put together this talk that was called Jugglers for Jesus and talking about women's role in the church and the home and the workplace and so on. And, you know, you do one thing and you do it not poorly. You get invited to do it again. So I was invited to do this a lot. And as I started doing this, and these were large conventions, often there'd be, you know, 750,000 women, women would start coming up to me saying, you never talk about conflict. That was my very first introduction, really, to the notion that I needed to think more about that. At the same time, my husband, who's a clinical psychologist, was having in his private practice, um, he, he was at the university, he was a depression researcher, but he had a, a private practice one day a week. He was being called upon more and more to see people in the Christian community who were uh, had been victims of uh, some form of trauma, um, or uh, abuse in their lives. And often he was referring those people on, but he would, he would just mention this seems to be, so that was the second thing I was hearing. I was having ears to hear. And then a very influential woman by the name of Margaret McCain came to me in about 1990 and said, Nancy, I'm, I'm thinking of, of working together towards the establishment eventually of a center here in New Brunswick to study family violence. And I said to her, well, Margaret, um, if I'm going to be involved, I want to look at family violence in families of faith. And as they often say, the rest just happened. Wow. Wow. And I mean, was there, did a light go off or something at that moment? Did you think this is what I've been preparing for? No, she said to me, Nancy, that's where angels fear to tread. <laughs> but that wasn't the first time I'd heard that yeah. line. So... I girded up my loins and looked for the bomb of Gilead to be poured over my head, and there we go. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, Harry Gardner and I were just uh, laughing the other night about the first time I went to him in his position with the, uh, with the Baptists to ask if they'd like to participate in some of the work we were going to do, and he was very gracious. And, and I have to say, I mean, I've had a lot of roadblocks, as we all have in our lives, but I've had a lot of doors open. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that really my story is it's the little train that could. And so there's nothing special about me. I'm a very average woman who grew up in a very average home in a small city in Atlantic Canada. But God had big plans, mm -hmm. and I didn't know it. And I've really only learned that as other people have told me. Mm. Well, was there any time that you thought, I don't think I can do this? I mean, maybe you were a juggler for Jesus and thought, <laughs> what am I doing? It's too much. 
I never thought of it as too much in terms of the work. I thought of it in terms of too much that I'm not well enough equipped. I'm not smart enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not whatever it is enough. And, you know, I've had several experiences where people didn't want me in their midst. They didn't want a woman speaking out. They didn't want someone talking about domestic violence. They didn't want to be told to read the book I'd written. They didn't want to have to listen to the speech I was about to give. But that was later on. And, you know, by the time that was coming in its full force, I'd also had a lot of affirming things that were happening in my life. And I guess I would say to someone who's listening that it's really important to gather around you some really good friends in the sandbox. And I've always had people to play with in the sandbox who were helpful, who we worked together as a team. And, you know, through those people, I got to meet other people. And then you make connections. And through connections, you get strength. What one person cannot do alone, a group of people can do in concert. And so, really, I think that's the story of my life and the, the whatever limited success my work has had. It's been because I've, I'm really good at choosing people to work with. I think that's hugely significant uh, because... You've probably encountered them as I have. Many women feel very isolated when they're in leadership or leading a project or leading a ministry of some kind. Do you have any advice or suggestions for how uh, a woman leader who is feeling isolated might be able to find those people to get into the sandbox with her and give her that encouragement and and to challenge, you know, because we need both of those things, right? Encouragement and challenge as we go along. Well, I think one thing is, you know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a, I'm a practical person. And so I'll just give sort of a, a homey example. I was feeling in the build up to Christmas, the year after my mother died, I was feeling kind of lonely because we'd always Christmas baked together. And so I thought, how am I going to face the holiday season without this sort of activity that we have always done together, no matter where I lived in the world? And so I thought, well, I think I'll just invite 20 friends to come over. And that began something I did for 25 years, which is my Christmas baking started with inviting 25 friends to come and eat. And so, you know, I I don't want to to be silly about this because it's a serious matter of establishing networks. But I guess my strategy has been, you know, if I try a variety of things related to food and networking and having fun and respite, then out of that, some people emerge. And I've never been without having a few people in my life who are supportive. So important. I wonder if we could talk just for a few minutes before we finish about the issue of intimate partner violence. And after the years of research that you have done, what, what is your elevator speech? Do you know what I mean? What do you, when people say, what do you do? Well, I try not to tell them what I do because they want to get out of the elevator. <laughs> but if they were in there with me, what I would say is every one of us have a responsibility to be looking and listening to those who are around us. I just went to a wonderful chapel service this morning and my dear friend Daphne Marsden from New Zealand was speaking about the passage of the woman with the issue of blood and how Jesus listened to her story and affirmed her. And you know, that's the kind of woman I want to be, Anna. I want to be a woman who's ready and equipped to listen and then 
to know what to do next. And I think that's the challenge for church communities. That's the challenge for a pastor. Uh, pastors need to be preaching once in a while a message that talks about these issues. We need to think about church youth groups. We need to ensure that there's information in the washroom. We need to ensure that no couple goes to the altar without having been told that this is a possibility in married life and to be aware of it. So I think every one of us have a responsibility. Every faith community should be a safe place to disclose if you have been a victim of violence and every community agency should be a safe place to say you're religious. And that's what I'm working to do, to try to build some bridges between the steeple and the shelter. Mm, I love that. That's what so much of what the McRae Center is about, which is why I think our conversation today is especially appropriate. What has been, in your experience and in your research, the biggest barrier to women and, and men, sometimes men as well, we have to say, um, um, experience uh, abuse and violence in the home. What is the biggest barrier to them reporting and finding help in the church? Well, shame is the first and biggest and fear. And so how do we make it a comfortable place, our churches, a comfortable place, the pastor's office, a comfortable place, the women's Bible study leader around her kitchen table, a comfortable place to be able to say that we're hurting. And then it's incumbent on the person who's listening to the story to be able to hear the nuances of what that hurting is. Because very few people go to the pastor's office, knock on the door and say, pastor, I'm an abused woman. What happens is someone comes to the pastor and says, pastor, my life is falling apart. And it's the wise pastor who begins to ask a series of questions. Are you safe at home? Are there ever times you are frightened? that then draws out the story in a caring and compassionate way. And so, Anna, I think that no matter the level of training, every one of us have a responsibility. And then at the next level, for those of us who perhaps are more involved in, in church life, we need to be trained to, to be able to hear uh, the words uh, and to know what to say and to know what resources are available in our community and then to ensure that we make our churches safe places by proactive policies and by ensuring that we model as a pastoral family or as a family in leadership what it is to treat each other well mm. and to pass that along to our children. Mm. It's, it's a great challenge to the church and yet a, a great opportunity. Do you encounter significant numbers of pastoral families who also experience violence in the home? I certainly do encounter some. I would say if it's if it's a shame and a secret amongst those in the pew, it would be a larger degree of shame and se there would be a larger degree of secrecy of those who are in the pulpit. And really here's where we talk about, or I would wanna talk about that there's a holy hush that has often operated in congregational contexts and in denominations, and it's time to shatter that silence. And if I could just put a little plug in for our RAVE website, we have a website that has a, a multitude of resources. We have the stained glass story of abuse that a pastor could use in his or her congregation. We have a variety of questions, and we try to answer those from, from multiple perspectives. It's www.therave.com 
Project.org. And RAVE stands for Religion and Violence E-Learning. If you've missed that, Google my name, and I'm sure you'll find uh, something about the RAVE Project, and you can have a look at the resources that we have available, all free of charge. The books, of course, that we've written, I don't own the presses, so that there's a cost to those, but all of our resources that are online are free of charge. Yeah, there's some marvelous resources there, and we can also put a link uh, at the McRae Center website to people who are, are listening to this podcast to be able to connect through to those, as well as to see the course offerings that we have here um, at Acadia Divinity College, uh, mm -hmm. taught by our own uh, Dr. Steve McMullen, who has been part of the RAVE project and has done uh, research, uh, I think, under your supervision and mm -hmm. alongside. So thank you for that. We could talk a long time. I could probably talk to you for many days, Nancy. Uh, but uh, our time here is winding up. Uh, I think I would like to say thank you to you, not only for speaking with us today, but for your passion for what at times must have been a hard thing to be given. 